Oi. 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 IGA is shopping nice. IGA where the price is right. Seaford North IGA for your groceries and liquor. IGA Express. There's nothing quicker. Ilana Rasbash, and this is Radio Architecture. Good evening from beautiful Bunurong country. Welcome back for another broadcast of Radio Architecture with Ilana Rasbash. I'm broadcasting to you live on Radio Karam from unceded Aboriginal land. Tonight's guest is Sue Wittenoom. She's a Perth-born, Sydney-based architect with 30 years' experience with Lend-Lease, DEGW and ACOM Strategy Plus Practice. The common thread through her work as an architect, project manager and client-side advisor is designed for change. In 2015, she established The Soft Build, a specialist consultancy that helps people use buildings as scaffolds for organisational change. She lives by Jane Drew's observation that a building is 10 people thick. When a building project needs to be new and different, clients can use both the briefing process and the built environment to shape new ways of living, working and learning. Sue works directly with clients, leaders on engagement, communications and change frameworks. And she collaborates with project managers and architects to provide specialist planning and briefing input for consultant teams. Sue, welcome to the program. Thank you, Alana. Lovely to be here. And you're dialing in from Gadigal land tonight, which is really quite appropriate because you're such a champion for remote work and really thinking ahead and engaging with the digital transformation and organisations. So it's quite fitting um, that we've got you on the phone line tonight. So listeners, if she sounds a little bit different, that's our guest is... I would love to be there with you, but you're right. Hybrid's the way to go. Um, and the genie is out of the bottle on flexible work. Um, and we're not going back to the old days. So look at what's possible now. Why architecture? Why architecture? Uh, I think I think back, well, going way back in WA, I think it was architecture and law or law or something like that, something uni like that. But dad was an engineer, a civil engineer, and I'd grown up visiting him in his office and tinkering around in his office. And he, not only did he tinker in the office, but he tinkered at home too. So we were there were always iterations of the family home and the architect of those iterations was a good family friend. So I think I watched Ken Adam um, up close and watched what was happening and probably thought, I liked the arty side of things more than the legal, but it was a tough call. I was a debater at school, so there was a lot of arguing um, uh, and speaking. So, But architecture won and never regretted that. I'm looking at all my mates now who did law, who are all tearing their hair out and, and are, um, you know, are definitely looking for career changes. So um, I think it was the right pick. And in that as well, you've carved out a really interesting position in in your consultancy and and advocacy work 
as as well as as a as a definer. I want. I also wonder. I do want to ask the this question that I do ask everyone is: What's your earliest memory of a building or place? Would you still suggest that it was that that house that your guest was that your um your family the friend home. worked on? Yeah, yeah, yeah the home. No, look, I I think in terms of memory because that was a changing, a movable feast as we were growing up. I'd probably opt for my grandparents' house because that was that sort of took a more mythical kind of status in that it, it never changed um and you know the one constant in um for th- through the years growing up and I had three sisters was and mum was an only child so mum's mum was sort of like a second mum to all of us and the visits to um to their house were um were were like um I just have these great members around afternoon teas on Sundays with, you know, a, p- a bit of canvas spread out on the lawn underneath the fig tree. Um, and I think probably weirdly enough as the memory as a child was that the toilet was up the back in a path, not in the house. So that was, you know, um, out- outrageously weird. And my grandfather was, he was a quartermaster in the army. So he was a Q, you know, a Bond movie Q. And so his shed and the backyard were incredible storehouses of just about everything, and he would recycle bits of everything into the garden. So, so I think it would it would have to be it would have to be Glide Street, my grandparents' house in Glide Street. But yes, hat tip to home because that exposed me to architecture and and design in um, and seeing an architect up close at work. Wow, I, I, what I would do to have a peek into that shed. Of, of your quartermaster grandfather as well. I, I you'd, have, you'd have to hope that the car was out of it because the car, when the car was in, there was like two inches either side um, and and all all sides were full. So, so yeah, that's the proviso. No, no space wasted. I, I'm really interested in this contrast between your grandparents' home, this place of constant and stability, and then the ever-changing architecture of the place you lived in brings you into organisational change, strategic thinking, really encouraging dynamism from your clients. T- t- that, tell us a bit about the soft very, build. a very graceful segue that I had never put together before, Alana. It's, I mean, I, architecture, I, knew, I had no idea that the kind of work that I was doing now even existed. I had no clue. I mean, you know, you, um, how did you how did you choose architecture? Was there someone that you saw up close who made you think that you want this is what you wanted to do? No, I'd never met an architect. It was years and years before I met one. Probably first architects I ever knew was year ten in work experience. But I decided um, I wanted to be an architect in grade five or six. Um, perhaps a bit of pushing to stop me from becoming an artist in the family, and I was very lucky that they nurtured the interest that became a passion. But yeah. I was always very spatial interested in maps, geography, cities, Lego, all, all these little tidbits that I think suck kids in. And yeah. if, if you're lucky for that to be identified, then it gets fed and, fed and nurtured in my instance. Yeah. How did you yeah. discover that um, being client-side in a way, being taking up a more strategic position was oh. even possible? Look, um, well, and, I, and I didn't know it was at first, so I, I – I did uni at, um, I studied architecture at UWA and then I came to Sydney um, as soon as I finished um, and then worked as a young architect in some great practices for Daryl Jackson's Sydney Practice and for Lawrence Nielden Partners. So they were doing really exciting buildings um, that 
that we just didn't see in, in Perth. Um, so it was great to be on the East Coast and to be uh, on working on important projects. But, you know, when you're a baby architect, you are um, the foot soldier of a project. And, and that means the early years are very much on documentation teams and doing the detail of putting buildings together. Um, and I could see, for example, worked on the Science and Technology Centre in Canberra, the Questacon building, and saw the whole journey through planning of how that was resolved and all the work that went towards that. Um, I was just more interested in the ideas that led to the building and what the building was for than being the one who coordinated the reflected ceiling plan or who did the door schedule. So that... that um, that interest in um, what the building was for and what the building meant um, meant that when we had we we used to have these things called recessions as well, Alana, and frequently architects would sort of shake down and think, well, you know, do I want to be a taxi driver or or, or what? So at, at one of these recessions, I went back to uni and did a, um, a business degree um, at the University of New South Wales because I thought, no, I want I wanted to be upstream. Or I wanted to be where the decisions were being made before we got the architects on board, um, but didn't really, didn't really have a, a a strict clue about how that that would be done. But loved the business degree because it wasn't unlike architecture school. You know, you had uh, in the same way that we would do um, structures, environmental science, um, construction. We would learn all the building blocks, um, psychology, all the things that go towards that feed into design as an overarching discipline. I found myself in business school learning about things like economics, um, statistics, uh, finance, um, organisational behaviour and how they fed into um, strategy, business strategy. And in the same way that we had design as the capstone subject in architecture school, when you're doing an MBA then um, corporate strategy is the capstone subject that pieces together all of the elements that people need to understand if they're running an organisation. Um, so I really liked the um, devising a course of action that pulls together as many different threads and in the best possible world, uh, you know, a good strategic answer has all of the um, the delight that we find in a good building that's well resolved. Mm. And, when, and when the DNA of an idea around how a design works feeds through every aspect of the design, when when a when an enterprise or an organization or a school or a university is um, everything's aligned and every and everything feeds into meeting, you know, a really important objective, then you get that sweet spot in in organizations being successful in the same way you do when you know that a building is beautifully resolved and works and contributes to the community and performs so you know these are not these are not simple things to get all those ducks lined up um and I, what i did discover at going through business there was the idea that the was the discipline of change and how do you work towards changing organisations and realised that buildings were really powerful ways of doing that. So I still didn't quite understand what the work I would, I'm would i doing now is, 
Um, I, I left business school and joined Lend-Lease and Lend-Lease was a fantastic environment of um, seeking out projects that were not afraid to be difficult for um, the stakeholders and for clients. So, for example, when we, whenever we would do our own fit-outs at workplace, um, in Lend-Lease, we would really boil the ocean on trying to make sure that they were as ambitious um, and they would stretch the, 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 you know, the envelope in terms of what was possible. And one very early project, which was the renovation of three floors of the Australia Square building, the Harry Seidler Tower in um, George Street in Sydney, the round one, we, we worked with Blavel and Eild and with DEGW, which is the UK practice, on rethinking what an office meant um, and what, um, what, what you would do if you started from first principles and you looked at the work that people were doing and you devised a more thoughtful way of responding to that work rather than just saying, oh, you have five senior people, they would need five very nice offices and, you know, the minions could be in smaller spots. And back in those days, the tea room, for a typical workplace in the Australia Square Tower was, an, was a lift core room. So it used to be that if you wanted a coffee, you would go into a tiny little cupboard in the, in the core and you would find the cafe bar and you would go flick, flick and make yourself an instant coffee. So um, in my lifetime, Alana, I've seen the, the shift from cafe bar coffee to barista coffee in the lobby um, and even a machine in the office as well to make great coffee. As a Melbourneian, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you showed us the way in many. many <laughs> There's a, a quote on um, your website that really stuck out to me from Jane Jacobs where she says, we ask too much of our buildings and not enough of ourselves. Mm. That's, the yeah. me- that's the meat in your work really, isn't it? Yeah, well, the, the meat is that is that, a, you know, a, a, a complex building or – so we're not talking about houses, we're talking about um, the kinds of architecture that we build for for um, for firms or schools, again, complex, multi, you know, many people. If, if that, build, that building is like the convener of an ecosystem and you can physically shape it, but if the culture of – the way people come together and the culture of what makes people successful and the process about what they do and how that's convened over time and with technology and all of those sports um, supports. If that, you know, a, a building is a function of, of people and process and place. And if you want to change the building or if you, if you want a building to be new and different, then you can't expect the building to do it all by itself. You know, if, if an architect had a, Brilliant idea, and actually, there's one very fabulous example um, uh, of this. And if any listeners wanted to find it, they could just Google "wired lost in space," which is a, a wonderful write-up of a of a, a workplace that failed. And we don't talk too much about workplaces that fail because nobody wants to actually share their dirty laundry. In fact, people are very loath to even share um, very um, tame, mild results. Think you've um, we've just lost you there briefly, so are you coming coming back? Sorry, listeners, we've just lost Sue there very briefly, so I'll play you a tr- track in the meantime. 
So are you back with me? Are you back, Sue? Yeah, I'm back. Hello, now. ground control. We're on. That's all right. Okay. No worries. This is live radio. Not like I would tell you. I would tell you about how we go public with failure. Exactly. <laughs> See, the timing is serendipitous. That's that's exactly it. But we are dynamic here at Radio Karim, as you are in your work, and so we're we're back yep. live Boom. on air. And Boom. this is probably a great moment, listeners. If you're tuning in tonight and you've got any questions for Sue, she's an oh, amazing wealth of knowledge. Please text us in the studio on zero four nine three two one three. 831. So, so you were telling me there's a case study that was yep. not successful and people are always hesitant to share that. Yeah, people share it. But my, that my go-to example of a building that went horribly wrong was the story of Jay Cheat, who was an advertising man, his home at Los Angeles headquarters. And basically it was his grand vision and he was way ahead of his time and way ahead of technology and it was all around the flexible office before we had flexible offices. And what happened is everybody hated it um, and it failed and they had to undo it and almost go back in and redo the fit out because it was so bad. And it's beautifully told the story of just how bad it was. Um, but he's, he's the perfect example of how if you want things to be new and different, then in, in much the same way that an organisation doesn't just decide it's going to build something, it's got to go through a whole gates, um, a whole series of gates for example, to get the finances lined up and to get the internal approvals to go through um, and then to, to get the business case written and then to get everybody lined up. In the same way, you can use that time of how do we get ourselves ready to approve a building, to be working on the aspirations for the building. And you can be involving people as well. And I, I think if a building is has a very ambitious remit, then it's a risk not to involve people because no no senior person briefing it um, can play God and know all the answers. You know, but work is too complex. Institutions are too complex um, to to assume that we or a property manager or a finance manager can know best and can co- confidently brief this. So, you know that your your complex your clients, Alana, when you're working in a hospital, you'll have reference groups and you'll line up the specialists to give you input into the detailed briefing of very highly specialist facilities. Um, so architects know that they have to involve the, the users when it gets to design documentation. I argue that architects or, or clients need to involve their people right up the front of a project when they're terrified at the prospect. And that's the big people. point of difference that listeners, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. That's a really big point of difference that you're doing all this work very, very early on before someone even decides that they need a building and maybe they don't need a building or maybe they're not sure if they need a building. So you're actually yep. getting well ahead of that. It's not later convincing people that that's what they want once it's already decided. Yeah, which is a tricky job for an architect to to be doing, which is why people like me exist outside of conventional practice and we're either in consulting um, firms or in other organisations that operate a bit more like management consultants and help people think through the issues and do some more and, and research, do internal research to actually understand the problem. Because um, from a sustainability point of view, we don't want to assume that we have to build more or bigger. Um, we need to work with all of the assets and all of the carbon that we have now. And... The lesson 
most the, the most valuable lesson from um, from COVID is knowing that when everybody across the board can be a bit more flexible, can work remotely, uh, there are then we don't need to have the same amount of space that we used to have before. We can consolidate, and we can use less space better, uh, and that. You know, it, it, it'll. I think it's coming up in in 15 months' time. Um, any firm over 500 people is going to have to publicly account for the carbon that it uses. So the rubber's going to hit the road when organisations can't be wasteful around space because empty, unused, underutilised space is a burden on the planet. We've got to we've got to be smarter about it. So hybrid hybrid organisations, which let us bank the gains of being stuck at home to now being able to have two, one, two, three days a week and then come together in the office. That means that maybe, Alani, you don't need to have a desk waiting for you when you come to work because you're, you know, you've got a laptop, you're fine at plugging in and being functional and effective wherever you are now. We've all had, you know, done the deep dive on, on how to work via Zoom and how to connect with all the different platforms that we have. If you can work every, anywhere, then we don't need to give people the real estate that we use to when they do come into the office. And they need different things at the office so we can rethink the kinds of space we give them as well. It's all about so, trust, isn't it? And you and I um, shared a parlour panel once. In the depths of lockdown, it was, it was online yep. and we, we talked about this at length, how it's all about trusting your workforce because that's what, that's what you hire them for. That's what, that's what they're there to do the job. And why not move to hybrid? And if you can't trust them to be hybrid, then it's, it's a hiring issue. But yeah. in this idea of trust, when you're bringing teams together, trying to build um, the briefing team, the client side team, very, very early on in the process, maybe the project managers haven't been engaged. Yep. You mentioned earlier fear. How do you help people stay in the trust and navigate the fear of losing their building, changing their building? A new building. Well, in the in the early days, that the first combat. Well, the, the theory. Sorry, I suppose it is a theory of change. The reason that I think buildings work when they're different is is that you start out saying what's wrong with what you've got now. So you give people time to investigate and to think through and to critique what it is that they're doing now, and to hold that alongside where the organisation's going and to understand how what the, the purpose or the strategy or the, the corporate plan has outgrown the building that they're in. And so there will be lots, you know, there will be starting issues of people being miserable because the space is um, awful, um, you know, no day, something as simple as no daylight or, or not enough space or not organised well space, or it might be that the building can't keep up. So... Um, in the case, okay, I'm thinking of SBS. We did a lot of work in the early days with SBS who were reinventing themselves from being a broad broadcaster to being a multi-channel, multi multi-platform entity that was digital, that had online and that had radio and television at the same time that massive technology shifts were meaning that they weren't a tape-based organisation that, you know, that threaded spools around things and got people into booths and needed specialist studios. The kinds of broadcasting they were doing could be done at a desktop and the newsroom could be in an open plan environment. And 
all of the assets, the media assets, could be shared digitally. So all of a sudden, they had um, big areas of their fit out in Artarman and also they had space at Fed Square in Melbourne that were almost mothballed because they didn't need these kinds of studios because the digital technology had changed. So in that case, the pace of technology had outpaced the environment and they're sitting there going, this is nuts, you know, uh, this, this, why have we got all this empty space? And, and then, while, by the way, while we're here, why is it that no one's got it? It's so far away from daylight. And how do we get teams when, um, if people are, you know, a football person or they're um, to do with the Tour de France, they've got to be involved in that across all of the ways we, we um, transmit and communicate, not just in that one little bit. So how could the building be more flexible? And so the conversations are like in the early days are really empathising with people and showing them, giving them an evidence-based solution to say how bad it is. Because you really, you really do need to say evidence of, of just how wrong things are to build the will to do it better. And then you also have to help people build a picture. Well, what does better look like? What's what? How should we be different? And and how could we change so that the building makes more sense for who we are? And that's a function of drawing on benchmarking from all over the globe. We've done a lot of work. Our UK part of our firm had done a lot of work with the BBC, so we had examples and precedents from that that we could bring but even then if, it, if it's worked well somewhere that doesn't mean that it's going to be the right answer for any organization that considers that case study you still got to build the connections back to their problem and you still got to build um, anticipation and enthusiasm and awareness of how they could be different so that then you move from the the evidence of what's wrong to exploring the possibility of how it could be better and that, that's a function of um, workshops with people and usually a whole slice of people from across an organisation, so from across different functions, um, different ages, different genders, so, you know, a proper mix of experience and input so you get diversity. Um, and you bring those people together with inputs around the benchmarks, with um, triggers and provocations to get them thinking about how they would like to see things change and be different um, and then you start to build the seeds of what their aspirations are which is one of our gates that we would say well let's let's sign off with the people in charge on what we would call an aspirational brief which is really planting the the, the poles of what better looks like and then once we sign up on that and we we you know you don't have to be fearful if you take it a step at a time so if we get make sure we've got support from senior people to say we want to head in this direction big tick everyone's on board then we work and negotiate the next tranche of work and we'll say okay that's where we want to head how do we get there and what are the smart ways of using space and what in your strategic plan can we link to 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 say here's the kind of organizational um organizational brief so we're still not briefing a building yet, Alana. We're still talking about um, an organisational strategy. And then when you tease that out over how space should be organised, what technology might support it, what sort of practices or HR strategies could come into play. And if you think of flexible work, when, we, when we're exploring how people or organisations could be different and work more flexibly, you can't have that conversation without 
talking to people in HR and to make sure that there are policies that support people to work remotely. You can't do that without making sure that teams feel comfortable to be remote. And before we were all thrown in the deep end in 2019 of being comfortable working remotely, we were having conversations with people saying, asking them to, to, to think about that as a, as a way of shifting to a hybrid workplace. So people that we'd got on the other side of this journey before COVID, when COVID hit and they were locked down, fine. Everyone knew what it meant to work from home. Everyone had the kit and they had the processes and they had the performance cultures and they could do it. And the organisational so, resilience to cope with all that, all that change and get on with it. And to even thrive under those circumstances. So... I wonder with the, with this process you go through with people and you, you set up gates and milestones to uh, agree at one point before you can proceed to the next and one step at a time. Have mm. you ever had unanimous buy-in? Uh, no, it's just like a referendum. You don't have to have unanimous. You no, you ne and you never would. It's too high a bar. Yeah. I mean, you have to. It has to be in the right direction, and um, certainly. By the time you get to working through a strategy in detail and a change, part of the art of it is how do you deal with the people who, who haven't who, who are critical? Those, I mean, people who are um, who give you very critical feedback and who are negative about things are incredibly valuable sources of information because if they care enough to be cranky and to feed, and to come back to come back at you with with reasons why, oh, that, that will never work or that'll be horrendous or, um, or okay, most extreme example, Alana, would be, um, and this is another DGW one, was for the redesign of the Children's Hospital, the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, when what was happening was that hospital was changing from being all centred around the specialist to being all centred around the patient. So instead of patients having to go um, and to all different parts, um, care was all patient-centred care and that was the model of care that was driving. And that meant that a very senior specialist who was used to having every, everything all but him, and it was usually a him, was actually having to accommodate more of, um, uh, was actually having to accommodate change to their clinical practices. And the most, it's probably the most extreme and scariest example was that um, one of my colleagues, um, Sue Lim, still told us, told us the story of when she was walking around with one senior clinical surgeon who said, if you do this, children will die because I am away from the, you know. So the fear at that point came from a very senior person, which was not coming from a rational clinical point of view, but was coming from a hierarchical, this is an affront to my seniority mm. point of view. I'm really interested and a lot in of a lot of the resistance when you think when you're looking at the change, you think, well, you know, who who perceives that they are missing out or that they are losing? And there's a trajectory that 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 we've gone from MySpace, where where senior people are are seen as very important, and space reflects them being very important, to space which is much more flat and hierarchical, um, where everyone is much more on a on a par and, and a, you know in a, in a clinical setting having having people like a, a, a nurse or someone in ancillary health being confident to actually voice an opinion in a multidisciplinary team is a healthy thing because it means that there's you know people don't people are confident to express an opinion that might be a really 
important bit of information at the time that someone else has overlooked. So you don't you don't know where the right answer or where a helpful answer was, would come from. So to be a more less hierarchical, more egalitarian working environment uh, is a good thing. And what's shifting now? Now we've gone from private big offices to private offices to no offices to now no desk. Is that where that that what what people are gaining is a sense of autonomy and the freedom to devise their working life that suits them and to meet more easily with people around them rather than be surrounded by the bells and whistles that that communicated how special they were um that, that that's another here's another quote i don't know put on the website that it building as a 24 7 low frequency broadcaster of of who's important and what matters yeah and, that's exactly right buildings and architecture represent ideas so it's inherently embedded in there I'm I'm a big fan of Dr. Brene Brown's work and she talks about how some of the biggest shame triggers, which underpins any good or bad behaviour, biggest shame triggers at work is actually the fear of of irrelevance. And mm. I imagine when, when it comes to these digital transformations, organisational restructures, strategic planning, that's just going to set so many people off, but it's about keeping them with you, keeping them in that, in that vulnerability and that trust. To move yeah. forward to better outcomes. Yeah, and there's no look. You can't you can't put lipstick on a pig if it's all about cost cutting and about shrinking and about um, retrenchments. Then there's nothing that you can do to gloss over that. So there are a lot of corporate restructures that would go through that sort of trauma. The if they're smart, they will regroup and they will say, okay, now we're. Uh, it's almost like if we've had the corporate makeover and we, we are in a much different position physically, let's remake our environment to make sense of who we are now. And then the building could be the upside of the corporate turnaround. And the building is all about um, being clear about what new values um, mean and how you uh, embody them in relationships and in space and how the expression of a, of a building or of a, or of a workplace communicates what's important in you matters you then you you can turn the corner and, and build something wonderful and new that symbolizes all those things yeah absolutely it, it all comes down to intention which, which is a point you mm -hmm. and I are both very passionate about as being a really critical yep. ingredient in getting great architecture yep. yep and and being very clear about how that informs and cycles through every aspect of the people you put on the project, the way you hold them to be, what you say, what, how you explain to them, and here's another Brene Brown, what done looks like. So what you want to see them achieve at the end of the day and how you give them a performance spec, you know, that's a, that's a sort of a not telling them exactly how to do it, but telling them how you want to be, how you want to hold them accountable. And then that should inform the work, the process, um, the architect that you choose. Um, because the, that's, this is the other lovely thing about working upfront with clients is that you can say this is the kind of design firm that you need to respond to these kinds of challenges and you can help shape the brief for choosing the designer and make sure that they're the right, the right team to come across. Um, but, yeah, intention is everything. And it's so much more thoughtful. I just also think about if stakeholders invested upfront 
or clients invested up front in this sort of process and this sort of hard work, really turning the mirror onto themselves, which isn't comfortable for anyone, let alone an organisation that everyone has some sort of skeleton somewhere, how much money and human time and energy they can also save. It's, mm. it's, that really gives me pause. Well, at the mention of the hospital, I want to ask about another one of your case study projects, the Peter Doherty Institute. Do you want to share a little bit about that one? The Doherty, yes. Well, uh, the Doherty is one of – so over the years there's been a handful of Melbourne projects which I've just loved coming to Victoria to work on. And I was thinking which – in terms of what's been built, because not everything gets built and some things take a while to cycle through, but the Doherty did – um, it's the to use the official title. It's the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity, and it's the building on Parkville that was ground zero for our response for COVID. Um, when we were involved um, with the Grimshaw team in the early briefing, the functional briefing, it was how does how do we tease out this idea of a joint venture between the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Health? And each, so they, they were the sort of two overarching parties, but each of those two institutions had very distinct operating units which made up the brief for the Doherty. So for Melbourne Uni, it had um, the Department of um, Microbiology and Immunology, which is where all the students went through, but it also had the Public Health Diagnostic Lab. So if you go out to dinner, Alana, and you get food poisoning and you think it's a dodgy chop, Someone's going to go back into that kitchen and they're going to fish out the dodgy chop and they're going to take it to this lab um, in the Doherty. And that's where they try and get to the bottom of food poisoning or food outbreaks or things like that. So we had, um, we had, um, and then from them, the hospital side of it, so that's just the university, the hospital side of it had all of these interesting um, groups that were responsible for managing infectious diseases and infectious outbreaks and created things like WHO collaborating centres on influenza. So you had research um, pathology laboratories, you had reference pathology, you had diagnostic pathology laboratories. One of the questions was, are, are these, if you put all these people together in the building, are they, is it so specialised that we have to build all these different special things or can we create a platform that works through the building which is actually core to the workflow to all of them, that they could come together. And that, so the strategic brief for the Doherty Institute was what is the cycle of the workflow for those clinical and research processes and could we find commonalities across all of those founding organisations that would let them co-locate happily in a building and uh, and to be seamless when they did come together. Um, so just a really fast, so you're at one hand, on one hand, you're looking at the workflow of a pathology laboratory. And on the other hand, you're like a marriage broker in that you're getting them all to speak to each other and get to know each other because they're going to work alongside each other. And and they're telling you things like, well, you know, the, 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 the real magic happens at tea time when we all get together and around a cup of tea because you can't take a cup of tea into the labs. So you find out about cultural stories. And and what how you know places like complex hospitals share knowledge, and how they can bring other people in to do that. So so complex built the more complex the building, the more interesting that unraveling um, at the front end to be able to create then the functional brief, which 
is still a huge and enormously complex piece of work for the architects to pick up and then resolve. But interestingly, the, the Doherty, and, and they did incredible work during COVID, and in one of the um, online sessions for Open House Melbourne, I mean, hat tip to Open House Melbourne, it's an extraordinary um, community effort that opens up buildings. There was an interview with Neil Stonnell, who was director of Grimshaw and um, Sharon Lewin, Professor Sharon Lewin, and she was talking, describing how the building had operated during the early days of COVID and how they'd come together and the speed at which they had to operate and how they had to scale up the testing as well as scale up the research um, and to all of the scientific work that led to the input uh, and the, you know, our successful tackling of, of COVID. Um, and interestingly, she said that they were about to move on to building a new addition or a new building next door. And one of the clues for the new building next door is that even though we had, we'd got the building to be um, a way where they could all collaborate closely, it needed to be even hard, it needed to be even finer. So instead of having them on a floor uh, or in areas together, they now need to be in teams that are like um, uh, pixelated with people from everywhere because the actual problem solving is so complicated and that the science to, to resolve is so complicated that you need multidisciplinary teams that even that have to override organisational boundaries. So that, that's an example of how the journey of the Doherty, the Institute, has outgrown a building in the, in, because of the severity or, or of the, um, the amazing challenge that they went through. So I loved hearing that. It's, that's um, incredible. It is. It's absolutely so, incredible. So, so it's a real privilege for architects and people to be able to be at the table and understand the depth of the organisational challenge and to hear what they're trying to solve. Because we don't know how to solve it, but we know how to solve relational and behavioural processes in time and we can use inputs from, um, again, cross-pollinate from other sectors or from, you know, from other other organisations and, and then give them uh, a suggestion for a way as to how this might work and that might be something we can then prototype, we can build a mock-up or we can build an experience centre and we can cycle people through it and then that becomes something that people can kick the tyres in the design process and that helps with the fear because if you can if you can experience something and if you can um, cycle through it and work in it for a bit or you can you can see it for yourself um, that helps you uh, address concern it helps you be a better stakeholder because you can put you 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 can put more in, um, informed input into a detailed design process um, and and you can be confident in knowing that you can see how you could make the the, the leap from where you are now to where you're going. So so there's a toolkit of stuff. And the flexible work place has been really powerful for me and for many of my colleagues over the last 15 years. And a lot of things that we've learned around how do you change people when change could be quite threatening um, and could, could be intimidating. Um, we've now got a lot of processes and a lot of ways of actually bringing people along with us. So it's just making sure that our clients know that that's important. 
what? and our client know to include time for that. What are some of the most important things for you in helping design resilient workplaces? Resilient. Um, well, so this, you know, there's two two ty- two kinds of resilience. There's shocks and there's stresses. And the shock was the it, in the workplace context. The shock was COVID when everybody had to work from home, um, and we had to shut offices down. So that that was a shock. The stress is the technological change that means that people are more and more mobile, um, and that over time we've realised that um, we need to think about the office differently. So, so being a resilient workplace means that a shock is a heart. The shock has meant the sea change of saying, oh, we don't need to have all this space anymore. So from from the shock point of view, people are renegotiating leases and saying, you know, I think we could probably do with half the space that we used to have. Um, so at that sort of big picture, you reduce your footprint. There is the stress of, of technology and of day-to-day change is, I mean, that's the genius of flexible workplaces. If you encourage people to move, and for them to sit with different people on different days, depending on what they're working on or who's in the building at the time, then then a workplace isn't broken. And, you know, this is a, the, to really push the analogy. If it's resilient, then it's bend. It can bend and it can adapt. And if people, if you've got a workplace that says when people come in for the day, we don't have to know exactly who's going to be there or where they're going to sit. We don't even have to get them to book. I'm, I'm not a big fan of booking systems. But if the people who are there turn up and have a way of convening with the other people who, who are there, so if you if you make just-in-time decisions, then the workplace can adapt. So I think that would be – that's a resilience that deals with the big picture of not having too much space and the daily picture of, of how, how does this workplace stay relevant. Yeah, of course. I want to ask another case study where the scale of the building might be a bit more familiar to listeners. Mm-hmm. Very few get to spend their time in laboratories and, and hospitals and think, as a yeah. workplace. So I'm curious about Linfield Village Hub and your work there doing service join, journey mapping and user experience. Well, the, Linf- uh, the village, the Linfield um, Hub is a project, a live project. So it's Karingai Council in Sydney who are developing a site that used to be a car park next to Linfield Station, and they're going to recreate the car park underground. They're going to build, uh, they're partnering with a developer to build housing and retail uh, and to turn what was a car park into a public space of open space, and then also to have a community building that is a hybrid building with childcare on the top and with a library and a community centre that, that are both library and community centre, not a standalone library and a separate community facility with meeting rooms, but but a combined hybrid space, which is more like at the ground floor if you think of co-working um, or of a good coffee shop that lets you just sit and spend the day uh, and no one moves you on. Um, one of the things that we're testing in this in this brief is that saying councils should be providing free co-working for people Good, close to transit, transit hubs and close to home because libraries are turning more and more into places where people hang out, especially, the, you know, the beautiful libraries that we're building and developing now. They're places that people want to be. 
So places that people want to be and having enough space for them to come and work um, or having spaces where they can rent or where if they're running a small business where they can um, uh, use space that makes sense for their business, where we're picking up on the trend that a library is much more than just a place for media and for um, books and a place to study. It's a place to meet, place to make things, place to collaborate, place to work, place to hang out. So librarians are going from, even though librarians as program managers are doing fantastic things um, and are not not shushing people unless it's, you know, study time like right now when everyone's head down and getting ready for exams. Um, it's much more about being um, a concierge for the community and for being a local host and an anchor of community activities that are happening in the park and in the public space as well as in the public area of the library. So the service journey um, that we did with Linfield was to help them think through, well, what's the life of the building? What's the life of a new building like this, a hybrid building? How does it work through the day or through the week? Or how would that change through the year? How can we be, how can we think about the kinds of people or the personas of people who are the, the kinds of groups that we want to make sure this new community facility can serve? And then how can we map out what a great visit looks like for them? And then what is it that the building has to do? So we feed that into the brief. Or what is it that the team has to do when the team's thinking about how it manages and supports what goes on in that space? Um, and what kind of people are the right kind of team to be there? So this, again, this nexus of people and process of place, how do we think about all those things simultaneously so that when, and in council's case, because it's procuring this new building through this very complex agreement um, that also sees the, the residential um, uh, development being uh, realised. So council has to be very clear about what it's negotiating. So the, the clearer picture they can have about not just of how much space they want or how big the collection is, but what life looks like for the people in Linfield when they come to this new facility. This gets everybody on the same page people in council, the people approving it at council, the people that they're dealing with um, on the other side from the development um, side of the agenda um, so that everybody can work together to, and again, everyone can be clear on the intention. What does, so a, is, what does yeah. a great visit look like for them? That, that I, really, I really like that question because often in terms of programs or spatial configuration, and community groups, often the clients know that, right? They they usually have a good list of groups that are scattered across their many ageing tired facilities. They decide to bring them together, consolidate services. They sort of know who they already have. But mm. the question of what does a great visit look like, I feel that's not mm. asked very often. Mm. And it's, it's thinking too about what is a visit, because the library used to be somewhere that you get in your car and you drive to the library and then you park. You go into the library and then you get out. Now it's library with a car park, doing your shopping, pick the kids up from childcare, come back from work. So it's a much more urban kind of proposition for the leafy outer, outer suburb, outer suburban area in Sydney. So it's it's casting forward and um, helping the people who are thinking about the retail mix, people who are thinking about the landscape, and all of the different parts of council who have had their own piece of the puzzle to manage 
before. Now we're encouraging them to come together and think about it in an integrated way. So what can they do better and differently because they're together? Is there one single thing that if you could change about the, either the procurement process or the – well, yeah, this, this all is the procurement process really, isn't it? If, if there's one thing that you could change about the process that clients go through to bring a, a building into existence – I think it would have to be a day in the life kind of scenario. It would it would have to be a way, of, you know, accessible to everybody in their design team, almost like a narrative, a story of what it is to, to work, live, visit, learn in this new building in a, in a narrative format because we that brings together, it's, it's a holistic, way of communicating how it should work if it's done well um, and I've seen it I've seen it done in the, in the kind of specifications that the ACT government does for schools they have um, a description of a day in life for the teacher which is um, most unexpected in a very dry procurement document Alana you know most of it's pretty um, heavy going um, and hard to wade through but um, there's there's like there's storytelling in the middle of, of one of these big, thick, you know, the, in the multiple appendix of these government-run processes to realise schools in the ACT, there are stories. I love that. And the stories, the stories are about how are the primary schools different and how are the secondary schools different. And I think they they capture everybody's imagination. So, so that's, yeah, I would, that's the one thing I'd do, tell a story. We mustn't we mustn't forget the people and the human factor and the stories and remember that these buildings are for people and for communities exactly. to use. Yep, and that that gets back to my other mantra that a building is ten people thick, Ilana. That that you can't just think of a building in terms of its materials and its form and its community. It's who does it serve? How how are they involved in bringing it to life and? How, how do they have agency over changing it and make, making sure that it makes sense for them and that it stays relevant over time? Fantastic. Well, I'd like to ask my last question, I think, and that's what gives you hope? Hope. Oh, um, it wasn't a very hopeful weekend um, after that referendum result. So uh, I would still... I'm still holding on to the best of of the First Nations culture that we were so graciously offered the chance to accept um, on the weekend. The um, the things that, and I know there's a, and this is not the week for the debate or the or the decoupling, but I, the real grief for me is that we've lost. The, the chance to walk with First Nations culture and to um, and the gift of, the, of sharing their um, their way of living on country and of being in relationship to country and of making sense of country went right at a time when we really really needed that that kind of wisdom and we still need it so hopefully the hopefully this is just a, a, a legal political setback and that it doesn't displace the profound connection that I think many of us have to to what it means to be um, privileged to live on this country. 
So First Nations people give me hope. I would in particular, I okay, a plug for Marcia Langton's piece um, in the Saturday paper and Megan Davis's quarterly essay to read the, the words of these um, two incredibly gracious women who have done so much to lead the campaign uh, to get the the um, the voice up? Uh, to know that we have that wisdom in our community gives me hope, um, and I'm hopeful that we still, even if there is a generational change in terms of First Nations leaders, that they they carry with them the wisdom from the leaders who have been instrumental in in the conversations we've been having to from since the Uluru Statement. Yes. It's very much just the beginning. Absolutely. Though, well, Albo's Albo's brilliant words, Churchill. You know, failure, success is not final. Failure is not fatal. All that matters is the courage to continue. Yeah, that's exactly it. May we all have the courage to continue. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that, Alana Rosbash. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sue. Thanks for joining me on the program tonight. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for joining me for another evening of Radio Architecture with Alana Rasbash. This live show was broadcast and recorded in the Radio Karim studio on Bonnarong Country. You can replay this show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in and supporting Community Radio. Take care. Hey, I'm Jane Oakley, a Matilda alumni footballer, number 36, and you're listening to Radio Karim. Stay tuned.